Welcome to the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio, where we do all-out free speech, road testing the First Amendment every weekend evening right here at Revolution.Radio, which is, by the way, the greatest of all listener-sponsored networks. Do go to Revolution.Radio. Check out their offerings, get into their archives, buy something from their Zazzle store, donate, and help keep this kind of great live radio going. All right, tonight we're going to be talking about two very controversial issues. We're going to manage to offend, well, maybe not quite everybody, but hopefully a fair number of people by uh, going where few radio shows dare to go. We're going to be talking about the cultural collapse uh, exemplified by Super Bowl depravity and degeneracy with E. Michael Jones, editor of Culture Wars magazine in the first hour. And then in the second hour, Jeff Brown of China Rising comes on to discuss what he sees as a likely U.S. biological warfare attack on China, namely the mysterious coronavirus epidemic. So hold on to your hats, folks. It should be an interesting night. Well, let's get going with the first hour topic, the Super Bowl, the biggest event in the world. Well, I don't know, maybe the Hajj pilgrimage is bigger, but it's probably not watched by as many people. The Super Bowl is the focus of America's attention and it used to be a football game, and now it's uh, the crass commercialization and uh, degeneracy, the inc- ever-increasing degeneracy of this horrific spectacle uh, is uh, pretty mind-boggling. E. Michael Jones has been charting the uh, slow-motion cultural collapse of America, the ongoing historical train wreck of the Founding Fathers' vision of the Republic, and he's been naming names and calling out the usual suspects and getting in trouble for it. So it's always an honor to bring forward one of America's great uh, Catholic intellectuals and truth tellers. So, hey, welcome, E. Michael Jones. How are you, Mike? Good, Kevin. Good to be here. It's always great to have you back. I really enjoy talking with you. And we shouldn't have to always wait till we uh, meet in Tehran to have a conversation. And, and that may be a while, the way things are going. It may be a while, yes, yes. <laughs> Next year in Tehran. Next year in Tehran, next decade in Tehran, whenever we can restore some sanity to uh, U.S.-Iranian relations, uh, maybe we'll go celebrate there. But meantime, we're not celebrating. We're mourning the uh, collapse of American culture. Uh, The Super Bowl, oh my goodness, it seems like every year they try to make it even uh, more uh, offensive. And, you know, it's, it's like this year, what did they do? They, they brought on uh, an Israeli-sponsored ad for drag queens or whatever the drag queens were advertising, I guess, uh, Israeli-occupied Palestinian hummus. <laughs> they, uh, they uh, you know, had a supposedly like pole dancing, like uh, you know strip club type dancing during halftime, which I didn't bother to watch. Uh, in fact, I couldn't stand to watch it. And what else? I guess there were there were a number of other things that you know, helped push this Super Bowl into sort of a new record of exemplifying the ultra crassness of decadent American culture. Um, so what, what did you think of the Super Bowl, Mike? Well, uh, I remember Colin Powell being on, standing on an aircraft carrier, probably in the Persian Gulf. It was years ago. And uh, he's, it was uh, played during the Super Bowl halftime. And he said, uh, this is what America is all about. Uh, he said, everybody here is watching the Super Bowl on our aircraft carrier, and this is what America is all about. And I think I think he's right to a certain extent. This is what the American empire is all about. Uh, and so you have uh, football. Uh, you have this kind of competition 
Uh, you have sports, which are kind of sublimated warfare. But then you have the, the, the halftime show. And that's where uh, the people who want to be at the heart of everything, this is where you are at this time. This is where you know that you're uh, an important person if you can have some type of association with, with the Super Bowl. And you know you have important ideas or an important product if you can get that ad on the Super Bowl. So it's a great way to sell advertising, and it's become kind of the showcase of America, the American empire, and what it's all about. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, being an American or the American empire is about transgressing uh, transgressing boundaries. And that seems to be what happens every every year. Uh, you you have some type of boundary, some type of element of good taste gets uh, trashed, and everybody talks about it in kind of shock tones, and then it disappears, and then you wait for the next transgression. But the so let's get to this year's uh, Super Bowl. This was the uh, Latino, the Latino super, the female Latino people of color Super Bowl extravaganza. So the target audience seems to be Hispanics. Uh, we have uh, Shakira who uh, and uh, Jennifer Lopez. Well, well, well Shakira, Shakira is a Lebanese Hispanic, so I guess she's supposedly representing Middle Eastern people. Uh, well, she le- I, she was born in, in Lebanon, but then she went to, where, where, I think it was, uh, it was in Venezuela, I think she went to Venezuela and she grew up there. Um, and so she has a, a Hispanic, she has a Hispanic uh, following. Uh, she's, she, she's been doing this, uh, writing songs since she was eight years old. I've been told she became a kind of idol among uh, Hispanic uh, girls. And, uh, and so that's fine. Okay, that's great. And the song she wrote then, and she's also Catholic. And so I believe it is Jennifer Lopez, at least baptized that way. So really? you're, if I'd known it was a Catholic uh, ceremony, maybe I would have watched it. It's not a Catholic ceremony. <laughs> it's a, it's an anti-Catholic ceremony. So you have to, what is going on here? You take these, one of the other things, so they're all, they're dressed in scanty costumes, uh, making lewd gestures on the stage. And then they have to bring children on with them. And the, the, the so we have Jennifer Lopez doing a pole dance uh, as some type of stripper. And then we have to bring the children on here. So these are Hispanic children. And what, what are we what are we telling these Hispanic children? You can be powerful, too. You can be a powerful woman if you do what America tells you to do. And who tells America what to do? Who, who who is behind this? Well, this this was produced by uh, a rapper by the name of Jay Z, and he's got a company called uh, Rock Nation, and they're the ones that put this thing on uh, this year. And uh, according to the source I have here, the the board of directors has uh, two CEO, co CEOs here, Brett and Michael Yormark who are of the Jewish persuasion. Uh, Brett Yormark is the owner of the Brooklyn Nets. And, uh, 
at a ceremony at Barclays Center in Brooklyn in 2012. Jay-Z lit a menorah to celebrate the moving of the team to Brooklyn from New Jersey. That's the group that's putting this on now. The group that put it on before it was produced by for a decade by a guy named Ricky Kirshner, another Jew uh, who was the owner of Kirshner Events, and he's the son of a music producer, Don Kirshner, who produced music acts in the 50s and 60s. So you put this all together, and I think you find out what America is all about. So you have a, a Hispanic audience that needs to be brought up to speed about what it means, means to be an American, and who is going to tell them to do this but the, the, the Black Jewish Alliance, uh, the rap music uh, co- cooperative, uh, who are going to then explain how you to be transgressive, uh, how this is empowering, supposed to be empowering. You can be an attractive person like Shakira. You all idolize her. You put up posters of her in your bedroom along with Jennifer Lopez. Uh, but you, in order to get to that power, you have to do what the Jewish producer says. And in order, what that means is you have to uh, engage in sexualized behavior. So there's the whole story in a nutshell. You, in order, you want to become a real American. Your parents came from Mexico. They baptized you Catholic. But if you want to fit in, you have to follow the, the people at the Super Bowl. And that means becoming a sexual robot and a wage slave. That's my yeah. reading of the Super Bowl. Yeah. I, I don't think you're far off there, Mike. It's kind of ironic that this is happening in the age of Trump, and you could actually see this particular halftime show, as you've described it, as uh, kind of a uh, message you know, to the sort of white consciousness people who voted for Trump partly because he's going to build a wall to stop the Hispanics from coming in. And I guess what's the message that this, uh, you know, this this American culture welcomes all the Hispanics as long as they become sexualized wage slaves working for Jewish billionaires. Right. This we the message here is that uh, the oligarchs love immigrants coming in across the border because they drive down wages. And so you can get the more that come in, the cheaper, the lower the wages go, the cheaper, the less money you have to pay for. That uh, that lady from Guatemala who who raises your children for you, or whatever. Uh, that's so. That, that's another angle of it. That's another angle of it. We we are welcoming these people into our country because we know we the oligarchs know that we can change anybody into a sex robot and a wage slave. We know how to do it. We're experts at doing this thing. We hire these people like Jay-Z and the Kirshners, uh, and they're experts at it. They're good at what they do. And so uh, we don't care. We don't care about the other people because we control the Super Bowl halftime show. And that controls the, basically the mind of America. And if you can tr- control that, then who cares who voted for the president and who cares what the president says? This, it, this, you're right. It was an assault on the Trump platform, which was basically to build a wall to keep these people out. Uh, And these people are not being kept out. And we're putting them on the Super Bowl and we're trumping what Trump did by our Super Bowl extravaganza. But could you see this Super Bowl halftime brainwashing program 
as pushing back against a little bit of consciousness growing in the American population, both on the so-called left and the so-called right. On the so-called right, we had the Trump phenomenon where Trump, you know, saying, you know, build a wall, make America great again by presumably going back to 1950s values and, uh, you know, stop shipping American jobs over to China and this kind of thing that's obviously going to get a good reception among some of the working class folks. So suddenly the right wing, the Republican Party of the utterly heartless billionaires transforms into the Trump Party, where you have this front man, Barker, this carnival barking, narcissistic psychopath who talks a good line, suddenly saying all these things that are very different from what the standard Republican line was, a very populist approach that essentially recognizes it's wrong in this country and that the working people are really getting screwed and, and the white working people not only are getting screwed financially just like all the other working people but they're also being told that they're evil and exploiters and all of this so the, the trump side on the right there's a people starting to wake up in, yeah. to a certain extent and then over on the left we have we have you know the, the bernie sanders elizabeth warren people saying these billionaires you know taking all the wealth is wrong we need to spread the wealth around and then you have uh, Tulsi Gabbard, you know, getting zero media coverage, but still making a bit of an impact by saying we got to stop going around uh, waging perpetual war on behalf of these same billionaires. So it seems like there's a bit of an awakening happening on both sides of this phony political spectrum. And this halftime show is almost pushing back against it. Yeah, I, I don't think it works anymore because there's more. There are many more uh transgressive images that you can get and this was not this was kind of tame actually uh you know by comparison to what you could find on the internet so that's where it, that's wearing down now the, you're right there is a there is a, a, a and also an uprising against the the oligarchs uh, in the democratic party but the democratic party i think is uh determined not to let that happen and i think what happened in iowa is a good example of this um mm. Bernie Sanders uh, was scheduled to win. Uh, they didn't release the last poll, which said he was leading. And then they've got this completely chaotic situation where nobody knows what the vote, how the vote is being counted, because there's a new app that was applied to it. And in the midst of this chaos, who stands up but our, our illustrious gay mayor from South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg, and announces he won. He announces he won, and then he gets out of town. I'm leaving. We're going on to New Hampshire. Well, uh, Bernie was upset. He thought he won. But I think what, what you're seeing here is, so so you look into the details, and it turns out that there, once more, it's a Jewish billionaire. This guy's name is Seth Klarman, who is a, pr a flaming Zionist, promotes all sorts of uh, uh, Zionist uh, trips to Israel and stuff like that. And he's the owner of uh, Acronym, and Acronym has produced uh, something called Shadow, which is the app that counts the vote. And it turns out that the, uh, one of these ladies who works for Shadow is also working for the Buttigieg campaign. So what a coincidence. Yeah, what a coincidence. Uh, but, but everybody, I think, started to wake up to what was going on here because everybody's saying, you know, now a, a vote for the Buttigieg is a vote for the CIA. How can a guy like this, who's 37 years old, who had a, a completely lackluster career as mayor, he wasn't here most of the time. I mean, just to give you one instance, he, he was mayor for about three months and then suddenly he left for Afghanistan uh, because he needed to pad his resume. 
he he needed to be a war hero, so he played video games in the in the green zone uh, for nine months and came back and then uh, kind of described himself as a war hero uh, because that was a box that he needed to check off on his resume. So suddenly now this guy uh, is showing up as winning, and and no one knows what the vote totals are. No one knows what they are, but he announces that he's winning. And if you announce it, it's like performative speech here. It's like I pronounce you man and wife. And if you say you won, I guess you won. And then it's off to to uh, New Hampshire. But the, 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 the thing that got played was his his walking out of the building. I don't really saw this. He's walking out. Everybody, all the reporters run over to him. He doesn't say anything. He's afraid to open his mouth. He just has this kind of weird grin on his face and then just walks through the crowd and doesn't say a thing. You know, I think that was probably a cat that ate the canary grin. I mean, come on. This is so it's so transparent. In fact, this is, you know, it's it's not like this is just a kind of a you have to stretch the facts to get to a conspiracy theory. This time you kind of have to stretch the facts to to not admit that this is an obvious conspiracy. I know. I mean, it seems so. It seems so obvious, and especially, especially if you read what he said. What, what he said was so couched in such uh, tentative terms, uh, uh, declaring victory in these tentative terms. Uh, when you know the vote isn't in, and you know that your people are counting the vote, and more importantly, you know the Democratic Party hates Bernie Sanders. Uh, we've already gone through this with Hillary Clinton the last time around, where she, she the vote. Yeah, got- this was almost a, per- a perfect replay of the Iowa caucus in 2016. And even the results were, you know, in 2016, Hillary supposedly won by like a tenth of one percent at the end. And that's just about the same amount that Buttigieg is supposedly uh, winning over Sanders. But I mean, who can actually credit these kinds of totals in this kind of situation? No one. And I think, but but I think that what now everything is starting to make sense now with Pete Buttigieg, like the man who came out of nowhere, who did not do uh, uh, anything in South Bend uh, uh, other than pad his resume, who got elected here under false pretenses in the only uh, election that counted, namely the Democratic primary, because this this place chooses runs Democratic all the time. And he deliberately suppressed the fact that he was a homosexual at that time, deliberately suppressed it. And then right before the next election comes up, well, if you're the nominee, the Democratic Party nominee, you're going to win. And at that point, he announced that he was a homosexual. And uh, the the Republican candidate, which is always a farce, uh, announced she announced that she was not going to talk about homosexuality in this issue, even though people were outraged at the deception. And then he wins and goes around claiming he won 80 percent of the vote. Well, yeah, you did. You won 80 percent of the uh, I believe it was uh, the uh, what What did we we have 100,000 registered voters and 8000 showed up at the polls. So you got 80 percent of 8 percent. Uh, 80%, something like that. So it's like seven, uh, that's maybe 9%, something like that. But anyway, you got this infinitesimally small uh, percentage of the actual people who showed up because everybody's demoralized here and they don't, they don't vote. Bernie well, Sanders- see, that's, and that, that's the key there. There's this new piece out and I'm forgetting the name of the author 
uh, just I think it came out yesterday uh, about the that uh, woman that woman political analyst forecaster who got the last midterms exactly right who's developed this model that says that the conventional wisdom about appealing to the undecided voters is wrong because the elections are decided purely by just who comes out to vote and people get all excited uh, like the the anti-obama people got excited enough to come out and elect trump and according to her the anti-trump people are likely to be excited enough to come out and so any democrat is going to win this time around I, that may be an exaggeration of the truth, but I think there's some truth to that. That is that uh, the biggest fact that nobody talks about, in, or at least rarely in the American elections, is that most people don't even vote most of the time. And right. a different group is coming to vote in each election. Yeah. Yeah. And that is certainly the case of South Bend, Indiana. As I say, you get you get uh, on a good off year, you get, uh, you know, 7 percent showing up at the polls stuff like that. It's abysmally low here. And, so, so, yeah. and he took advantage of that. And then it's, it's, it's he, what you're seeing is this consistent uh, pattern of mendacity here, you know, suppressing the fact that you're a homosexual in the real election, uh, giving you a false understanding of what the, uh, the people who showed up at the polls by saying 80% got 80% of the vote. Uh, claiming that you won the, the caucus when and then running out of town before the votes are counted. Uh, what you what you say is that you never could have gotten here unless you had big forces supporting you behind you. And a lot well, of them sound he's got like a good wine CIA. cave. He has, he has a first class wine cave where all the billionaires like to show up to, to taste the wine, I guess. He's, he's the oligarchs candidate. There's no question about it. They love him. And he's been grooming. He's been trying. He's been thinking of this for his entire life. And uh, this is what you go to Harvard. That's what you learn there. You learn what the oligarchs want. And then if you didn't get it there, you can go to get the Rhodes Scholarship so you can become an administrator of the American uh, British American Empire. Uh, that's that's all he's been. But but beyond that, what you're seeing here is now there is a, a CEO uh, homosexual alliance. Uh, throughout the world, this is this is the new uh, political alliance. We saw it here in in Indiana because the legislature tried to do something about it, and uh, they passed something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and uh, the CEOs got upset. And the CEOs, uh, uh, the guy uh, Benioff, who's the head of Salesforce, flew in, you know, from. San Francisco and told the legislature to uh, rewrite their law. I guess and, San Francisco gets to write the law in Indiana. Yeah, well, this is Mike Pence had a, a great moment of opportunity here. All he had to say was, well, what part of Indiana are you from and who elected you? And then uh, he should have thrown him in jail for trying to overthrow the government. But he wasn't smart enough to do that, and that's why he's vice president of the United States of America. Right? <laughs> well, maybe he was smart enough to keep his mouth shut. <laughs> well, it was a good career move. Because so, so what happened here? What, what, uh, I just did a piece in Culture Wars called How Google Conquered Ireland. And what you see is this uncanny similarity between uh, what's going on in Ireland, all those referenda where the, basically the, the Irish people are tearing up their own constitution – by permitting abortion and uh, decriminalizing sodomy, uh, 
Uh, the same thing is happening in Silicon Valley with uh, Brendan Ike, the founder of Mozilla, one of the great heroes. He gets drummed out of uh, his own uh, corporation by this lynch mob because he paid uh, a contribution to Proposition 8, which was against gay marriage, was passed because the majority of Californians voted for it. So the same thing is happening to him. The same thing is happening in Indiana and in in, uh, in Ireland. John Waters, the journalist, is uh, subjected to the same type of treatment. So you have this, this uh, coming together of uh, the new form of warfare. Okay, you've got these uh, in, in Ireland. It's the pharmaceutical foundations, the pharmaceutical companies. And then they have uh, tax exempt foundations like uh, the one by the striker. Arcus Foundation, uh, which basically ensures that uh, important companies hire homosexuals. So you got this fifth column within the group. And then you have the finally the, the final uh, leg of the tripod is the uh, information technology, Google and Facebook, who basically change the algorithms, ban, ban all advertising uh, a week before the vote. So you can't get the, uh, the right to life message out. If you type in abortion, for example, on Google, all you'll get is references to Planned Parenthood. Not one indication that the majority of the people in Ireland are against it, no matter what, the, no matter how the, uh, the, 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 the uh, referendum was rigged. And, and then you have the question of, well, did they count the votes honestly? Well, all of these things are just kind of circulating around Pete Buttigieg. They all kind of zero in on Pete Buttigieg, and he's at the center of all of these things. And that's kind of the new the new face of uh, of tyranny in our day. So, so what what do these CEOs and the Fortune 500 corporations uh, have uh, against family values? Why are they so enamored of abortion and homosexuality and so on? I think because uh, if you have a family, you have divided loyalty. And I think that what they want is this kind of total dedication to the job. And what you're what you see here is uh, a family is a distraction, according to these people. You know, where's the next generation of workers and consumers going to come from? Well, that's you're asking uh, uh, uncomfortable questions here because obviously if there are no children, there's no the, the workforce disappears within a generation. And this actually happened in Florence uh, over the course of the 15th century. So, uh, so they're going to have robots, I guess, re- replacing the workforce. Well, they yeah. think they think a lot. Someone's got to make the robots. Robots don't make robots. But right. I mean, and then you're going to have robot consumers, just, and then what do you do with all the people? <laughs> let's let's go let's go back. I think in in uh, let's say right after World War II, seminal year would be 1947, when uh, Henry Ford II signed finally sat down with the UAW. His his uh, grandfather used to send out thugs to beat up people like Walter Ruther. So he finally settles down. And we create the high wage job. Ford is is famous for the high wage job, and high wages are the key to prosperity. So, uh, but the the real key to this is the family wage because you're you're paying you're being paid a high wage because your wife is going to stay home and raise those children. And over the long haul, this is very productive because they they thrive in this environment and they become the generation uh, the next generation of workers. Well, 
you enter into the era of social engineering and it becomes sexual social engineering. And you have this phenomenon like Playboy magazine. Playboy magazine uh, was uh, there to tell guys how to buy things. Because for the most part, uh, when you're part of a family, your wife buys the stuff. You know, you bring the check home, you pay check, and you hand it to your wife, and she's got first, she's got to buy the food, buy this, buy that, and pretty much you're left with, what, what beer and cigarettes after that, maybe? Mm-hmm. Well, well, yeah, I, that, that's how it is in my Muslim family, except I don't buy the beer and cigarettes, so I don't buy anything. My wife gets I, to buy everything. I, she enjoys shopping more than I do. Yeah, yeah, whatever you buy. Uh, but uh, that that was pretty much the pattern, and that's the way it was. And and uh, Playboy comes along and says, no, you you first of all, you can dump the wife. We don't need that anymore. We've got these centerfolds that you can ogle. Uh, and also, we'll tell you how to spend your money after you divorce your wife, because it'll all be your money now. And you can buy this pipe or you can buy this. That's what it was. That's what they were doing. That's what they were doing. And so they basically disrupted the entire achievement of labor uh, throughout all the course of the 20th century, where they finally came up with high wages. And then they dismantled the thing by turning it into a consumerist type of thing. I'm, I'm saying this because eventually Ford then uh, gets on this politically correct bandwagon. And of course, you've got to hire homosexuals, right? Because they're the only, you know, if you don't, you're discriminating. And we want to be uh, on the cutting edge of non-discriminating. So you had a guy like Jack Nasser who was CFO, and he was famous for going out to Ford and saying, I see too many white faces out there. Well, Jack, what business are you in? Are you in the business of making cars or are you in the business of social engineering? And the answer was social engineering. And so you hire a homosexual. And guess what? He hires other homosexuals. And pretty much you've established the pattern of the ideal Ford worker, which is no longer a family man, but rather uh, a man who is engaged in transient sterile relationships and has lots of disposable income and likes to be around other people who engage in transient sterile relationships because it seems as if they are dedicating their entire lives to their job. Aside from that, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever you do on weekends and stuff like that. And that they like that. They like that. And so they make it the norm. And that's the problem now. Now that's the problem. So suddenly, wait a minute. Oh, sorry, we hired too many homosexuals. We're going to have to fire some people. Let's fire the people that have families. And on top of that, we will also now reintroduce two tier wages. So, well, you, you're kind of grandfathered in at your high wage, but the young guys coming in, they are not earning decent wages anymore, not even in the automobile industry. You factor in outsourcing and all that other type of stuff, and basically what you're doing is cutting your own throat because, uh, as Henry Ford realized, if you pay him a decent wage, he can buy a car. Wages, uh, from the point of view of the economy, are income. They're not expense. They're income. That means money flowing into people and everybody buying things because of uh, they had they have uh, more more income. So well, that's having that that high high wage for the male breadwinner as a kind of a social norm had a lot of benefits 
as you mentioned earlier, the children get more attention as they're growing up. And so they end Actually, up from their, mother, from their own mother. Think of that. Your own mother is taking care of you as opposed to some some uh, maid from Guatemala who doesn't know, can hardly speak to you in the in the la- in your own language. Think of that. Your own mother taking care of you. Yeah, yeah. So, so we've really regressed. It seems in a lot of ways, uh, and I, yeah, I think you're right about this. My grandmother used to talk about how, when she was hired to teach high school alongside my grandfather, who was a math teacher and then a football coach, he became the most successful football coach in the history of Madison, Wisconsin. Oh boy, that's that's a claim to fame. Uh, almost like winning the Super Bowl. And uh, and then he he got he got made principal of the high school. And anyway, my grandmother used to talk about how they paid her less than my grandfather when they were both hired as teachers. And at one level, she was kind of a, a proto-feminist and said, yeah, that's not really fair. But on the other level, she had, but, you know, they were doing that because in a lot of cases, the women didn't work and you needed to have, you know, the male breadwinner had to be able to support the family. So she wasn't, you know, even though she was she was kind of a feminist for her era, but she saw the reason for that and uh, was not bitterly opposed to it. No, when I, when I arrived at the, that Catholic college up the street here, St. Mary's College, uh, every, everyone was talking about equal pay for equal work. Well, who can argue against that? Well, the no, the one thing no one ever talked about was the family wage. Now, two people have to work, husband and wife have to work to earn the same amount that what the man worked that earned. Back in the golden era of uh, of high wages, beginning in in the nineteen fifties, that's that that takes into account the necessity of having children because if you don't have children, they're not going to have any workforce, and if you don't have a workforce, or uh, no one will buy your product, and if you don't, if no one can sell anything, then the whole economy collapses, and so what we have now is a con- economy which is with chronic low demand for the reasons I've just described, but also because uh, instead of a ra- wages going up, uh, we got credit cards. And so what you have then is usury going up, uh, uh, interest payments, uh, debt siphoning off all of the productivity in the economy into the hands of fewer and fewer people. You know who these people are. Paul Singer, the vulture capitalist. Uh, and these are the people, uh, Seth Klarman. Yeah, uh, and, and they're supporting the Democrats, which... The, the, some of them are supporting the, the Democrats. Of the some of them are... But, but they're, they're oligarchs, so they're supporting, basically... Uh, uh, they, they have so much money that they can buy... Politicians. So you can buy Sheldon Adelson can buy the Republican Party. He's got so much money. And and this, again, goes back to what I was trying to tell you about Ireland, because one of the problems that came into focus here was the status of tax exempt foundations. Now, I happen to run a tax exempt operation of economic insignificance. But when you get families like Ford, Rockefeller and Carnegie, uh, putting their wealth in tax-exempt foundations uh, to escape paying taxes in the 1930s, you set off, you set in motion basically the impoverishment of the entire society because what you're doing is 
putting all this money out at compound interest and compound interest becomes unrepayable. So you've got you're earning compound interest and you're not paying taxes. And so as a result, you have enormous amounts of money and that translates into enormous amounts of political power. So in the night in 1953, like right after the war, uh, they have uh, Carol Reese as a commission in which he says tax exempt foundations have too much political power. He held hearings for two weeks, and guess what happened? Those tax-exempt foundations shut down the committee hearings. They had so much power. And that mm. was in 1953. Yeah, that, that's, sort of, that's sort of like what happens when people like Gilad Atzman and yourself talk about Jewish power. And, uh, of course, then you instantly get shut down and terrible things happen to you. And, of course, that all proves that there's no such thing as Jewish power, that's right? That's right. <laughs> it, was, it's, it doesn't exist, <laughs> and you're going to be crushed by that thing that doesn't exist. But as I said, you know, I'm not dead yet, and uh, I've I've survived. The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit came out 11 years ago, and uh, I live to tell the tale. And I think that the times are changing, and people are starting to criticize, say things that they would not think of saying before. And the ADL is upset, you know, and so they need to find someone who's going to give the uh, illusion of some type of progressivism while at the same time, the reality of, of loyal servitude to the oligarchs. And the best example of that is the homosexual. The homosexual is the proxy warrior of our age. And the best example of that I can give is Pete Buttigieg. So, so, so Pete Buttigieg is being set up to be the next Obama. You can see yes. how bo- in both cases, their uh, whole careers were set up for them long in advance, You know where o- Obama was you know, sent to the Ivy League, and he had Brzezinski as his major professor, and he sort of disappeared for a year while he was supposedly at Columbia. Who knows who was really training him for what? And then his first job out of, well, they, he gets Harvard Law Review, of course, and then his first job out of college is CIA. And then he becomes a phony, um, uh, what, social worker in Chicago. And his political opponents, when he starts his political career, just have, you know, just disappear. They drop, you know, they're knocked over by this scandal or that scandal. The whole, his way is paved to the White House. Obviously, it was a setup from day one and uh, was all designed to put the first African-American in the White House. Um, And now they're doing the same thing with Buttigieg. He's supposed to be the first gay president. But I don't know if it's going to work because, you know, people fell for Obama uh, yeah, it worked the first time. Uh, Obama also, I, yeah, I think uh, there are a number of reasons why it strikes me as less likely it's going to work for Buttigieg. Uh, for one thing, people are starting to see through this stuff. It's too yes. obvious that Buttigieg yes. is the candidate of the billionaires. And especially when he goes up against Sanders and Rob Sanders in broad daylight, it makes it way too obvious. And then there's also the issue. Of, you know, the, the people who vote versus the people who stay home is what decides elections. And there must be a lot of people who are just going to have something that says, you know, I, I, I like voting for a black president who kind of talked like a white person. Uh, you know, he's kind of an Oreo and he, he seemed like a decent guy and all of that. So I, I like voting for this black guy, Obama. Do I really want to vote for a, a homosexual? And they're never going to tell the truth to the pollster uh, or in the focus group, but they're more likely to stay home on election day. There are a lot of people that are just going to, I I think, you know, that there is that widespread feeling 
that homosexuality is not this wonderful, virtuous thing that we're being brainwashed that it is in the media. And a huge segment of the population, including a lot of the people at the lower ends of the income scale who may or may not come out to vote, they're not going to come out to vote. So I, I think it is totally dead in the water. It's, it's, you know, it's not going to work this time. What do you Well, I mean, if you're talking about identity politics, which I think is what we're the Democratic Party is based on, uh, let's say women, okay? And Hillary, Hillary Clinton speaks for women, doesn't she? She says she does. Doesn't speak for my wife, or I know lots of people, but but that's the claim. And women are 51% of the population, and so therefore uh, you would got immediately have them. Well, that's that's false. We, we know that's not true. But it is true that there are a lot of women out there. Uh, that's not the case with a homosexual. And, and there's nothing uh, morally suspect about being a woman. But there is uh, a moral odium attached to homosexuality. You can't scrub it off. I'm sorry, you can't. I don't know whether you saw that picture of the woman in Iowa comes and says, I didn't know he was a homosexual. <laughs> I'm taking my vote <laughs> No, I, mi- I missed that. Was, it, was that on network news? I think it was. I think I saw it on. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> anyway, Politically I incorrect know, moment. I didn't know he was a homosexual. I Can I take my vote back? And then they're saying, well, I don't think you can. That type of thing. There's there's a, a, a lot of that. A lot of that out there. But if you're talking about identity politics, you're talking about a group that is somewhere between one and two percent of the population. Well, he, he's, he's going to win the Castro district in San Francisco in a landslide with very high turnout. Yes, yes. But he couldn't, he couldn't mobilize anybody in South Bend, really. I mean, the voter turnout is so low, that, and the, the Democratic Party always wins. And so if you win the primary, you're going to win the election. But this is, not, this is not a formula for getting votes. This is a formula for alienating people. And now the more he's in there, the more he starts alienating people. So wait a minute. So, let's, let's, do a, let's have a conspiracy theory here. Okay. I, Buttigieg looks like the one Democrat who's almost certain to lose to Trump because he would depress voter turnout among potential Democratic voters. And the billionaires are all behind him. Maybe the billionaires want to get Trump reelected. I think that's certainly the case. I think that's look. the Republican Party was notorious for nominating fall guys. Uh, Wendell Wilkie is like the classic example. Yeah. yeah. Uh, There's if you go to the famous photographs of Life magazine, there's this picture of Wendell Wilkie in his hometown in Indiana. Well, you look hard at the picture. There are about three people in the background. It was completely manufactured. This guy is completely manufactured to lose the election because the oligarchs wanted Roosevelt to win at that point. Yeah, he, and, he was he was manufactured by the House of Morgan. Gore Vidal gets into this in his novel, The Golden Age. Yeah. Uh, you know, Gore Vidal shows that uh, homosexuals in politics actually can do good things. Um, maybe he's the rule that proves the exception. Back in those days, homosexuals like Jews were a little bit more outsiders or something. I don't know. But whatever, Gore Vidal is a wonderful writer and commentator. And his book, The Golden Age, exposes how Wendell Wilkie was just manufactured out of virtually nothing by the House yeah. of Morgan in order to make sure that there was no anti-World War II Republican candidate because such right. a candidate would have knocked Roosevelt out of the White House easily and kept the U.S. out of the war. And the House That's of Morgan right. wanted to make sure the U.S. got into the war. So they uh, they manufactured this sort of lukewarmly uh, pro-war Republican, Wilkie, as a fall guy. 
And it's right. quite a story. Yeah, well, the, the same thing was Bob Dole. What was what was the Bob Dole? Was he there to win against Clinton? No, he was there to basically destroy the Buchananite uh, section of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. That's what he was there to do. Some a lady who understood this completely was Phyllis Schlafly. She really she wrote a book about it, and it's it's completely accurate, completely accurate understanding of the Republican Party. So I think what we're seeing is the same thing here with Pete Buttigieg. If Pete Buttigieg is to Bernie Sanders what uh, Bob Dole was to uh, Pat Buchanan. In other words, we anything but Bernie Sanders. Any, but, anything, but is, can you really see it working? I, I really, I'm going to be shocked if Pete Buttigieg keeps on so-called, you know, getting these so-called wins, you know, and announcing his wins long before he could have known oh, and, and going from victory to victory. I, I don't see that coming. Well, did you see it happening in Iowa? I mean, didn't it happen? Yeah, it, it, worked, it worked once, but can it can it work again? I don't know. <laughs> it, it's it's too it's too out front. I mean, it's this is like the revelation of the method thing. You know, some people think that these conspiracies, like nine eleven, for example, they blow up Building Seven in broad daylight, so anybody with eyes can spend two minutes on the internet and see that nine eleven was the false flag and that they blew up the towers and murdered 3000 people. Like, why did they blow up building seven in broad daylight? And why did they do all these other things that were way too obvious? Why did Larry Silverstein confess to that demolition on live television rather on uh, PBS? Because, well, according to this particular revelation of the method theory, they want to rub our noses in the fact that they can get away with anything and we can't do anything about it. But this Pete Buttigieg stealing Iowa in such a blatant fashion, it's getting, it's generating a massive backlash. The mere cheat hashtag was the biggest trending hashtag on Twitter. The yes. Democratic rank and file is all on it. They're outraged. So I think it's going to backfire on him. Yeah, well, at, at, at this point in every discussion, we come now to the cunning of reason and the fact that God is in charge of human history. And so sometimes... Uh, he allows people to overplay their hands and to, so they destroy themselves. And this may, this may be the, the crucial moment right here, where suddenly Pete Buttigieg is the, the perfect oligarchic candidate who is now going to expose oligarchic control of the electoral process and therefore nullify it. And ironically, this could help Bernie Sanders, who's sort of the anti-oligarch. He's the guy who wants to take away the oligarch's money, which is, of course, why they want to stop him. It it could play out in his favor because he, he kind of comes across as a fairly kind of normal, honest and sincere guy who has your financial interests at heart when you put him up next to somebody like Buttigieg or even next to Donald Trump, for that matter. I, I wonder what they'll have to do to keep him out of the White House. This is oh, this has been waiting to happen, and it, it, Donald Trump did play on the, the he did play these strings in Indiana. He was for the working man. I was there for the rally. He was got the biggest applause of the evening when he criticized Carrier Air Conditioning for moving their plant to Mexico. He knew what he needed to be to do to get elected, and that is out there. It's that is waiting for someone to pick it up and mobilize it. One one of the I, I just had what you know back in the the turn of the century, two thousand two thousand one. Uh, there was a big resurgence of Irish music here in South Bend, and I got involved in it. And at that point, I realized this is the moment, the night like the nineteen thirties moment, the return of the nineteen thirties moment. And I think it is. It's America first. It's 
you know, talking about working men, singing songs like Joe Hill, the ballad of Joe Hill, where working men defend their rights. It's there you'll find Joe Hill. That's what needs to be talking. That's what we need to talk about. And I think Bernie Sanders is willing, coming from the old left, he's kind of like the echo of the old left. He's incoherent because he supports abortion, which is incoherent. It's not compatible with the old left. But he does make these economic noises, and I think that's why he's the enemy of the oligarchs. You, you think there's any chance that uh, Bernie Sanders could actually win and usher in some sort of new deal? I, t- I, I mean, there, there are so many there are so many variables in that thing. It ha- Let me put it this way: it has to happen. Something has to happen because just student debt alone is over a trillion dollars now. This is unrepayable. You cannot have a trillion dollars uh, of debt uh, uh, accumulating at compound interest. It will destroy the entire economy. Someone is going to have to do something about this. We had grassroots protests like Occupy Wall Street. But no, none of those kids understood. They understood that they, they all held signs that said, um, uh, um, 50, 000, I have $50,000 of education debt, and all I can get is an unpaid internship. That is the crucial issue here. That is reality. And some, and they, they didn't know how to do it. They didn't know how to mobilize it. You know, they, they, uh, someone's going to have to speak to that. And I think both uh, the Democratic candidates are, are starting to speak to that. And there's going to be some type of resonance. It has to happen. It's got to happen. You know? Well, the, the other side of comparing the situation to the 1930s is the looming possibility of a major war. It seems that the rise of China has put some of the imperial strategists in a nasty position where they may think that they'll have to really push hard with their fourth and fifth generation warfare to try to contain China and coronavirus outbreak as a biowar attack on China. We had Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Labor, bragging about how this is great. It's going to make America great again, bring the jobs back to America, uh, which is a heck of a thing to say when the Chinese media is full of insinuations and even outright claims that this is a U.S. biowar attack. Uh, We've been over the information supporting that interpretation on False Flag Weekly News today, and it's uh, kind of disturbing. And so, you know, we had people like Steve Bannon saying, hey, this is going to be the 1930s again. It's great. And by the way, we're going to be at war with China within a couple of years. Uh, So don't you think that's kind of a disquieting uh, aspect of comparing our times to the 1930s? Yeah, well, obviously, they're never going to be the same, but there are similarities here. And the the greatest dissimilarity is that we have uh, sexual liberation distracting us from economic concerns that did not exist in the 1930s. Yeah, that was the 20s was the uh, big uh, liberation decade. Yeah, and the, and the 30s were a reaction to the 20s, and that's when everybody got uh, serious about about economic issues. And you had people like Father Coughlin and Charles Lindbergh. By the way, Philip Roth's book is going to come out as a HBO film. It just shows you how paranoid the Jews have become. Uh, Which book? Recent. It, the book is called The Plot Against America. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, man, that, I, I read that. And, you know, Mike, that, that book, struck me as kind of creepy. It came out not long after 9-11, and it's called The Plot Against America. Now, 
that's already, you know, okay, it comes out right after 9-11. It's called The Plot Against America. And what it describes is uh, Charles Lindbergh and the American First Party winning and making life a little bit uncomfortable for uh, urban American Jews. But it kind of struck me as that the plot against America that he's referring to in the title you could you could see that as a Romana Clay kind of disguised version of the 9/11 plot against America, which made life uncomfortable for um, American Muslims and you know Pakistanis and so on and so forth. That you know his Philip Roth's young Jewish guy growing up in a an America dominated by Charles Lindbergh and his friends is a bit like what it's been like for uh, kids of the Muslim persuasion to grow up in this post-9-11 America. I think Philip Roth knows that 9-11 was a Zionist false flag, and I think he signaled that with the book, and I wonder if that's going to come out in the film. I think you're giving Philip Roth too much credit. I don't think, <laughs> he, I don't think he's capable of thinking beyond his own paranoid Jewish fantasies. And if there were ever a paranoid Jewish fantasy, it was the plot against America. You know, where he's Charles Lindbergh is going to round up Jews and put them in concentration camps. Give me a break. Well, no, he, I thought he, he just sent them to Tennessee to work on farms so they would know what real work was like for once. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, this is complete fantasy. And why, why, why is I know why the movie's out. I know why the movie's out because of all of this uh, so-called hate speech that the ADL doesn't like. And then there are these incidents in uh, Brooklyn where black people are now beating up Jews because the Jews are charging them too much in rent. And we need to divert everyone's attention from the reality by creating this paranoid fantasy that has no basis in reality that is going to demonize Lindbergh. And that's going to backfire because people are going to look into it and they're going to think, wait a minute, what was wrong with Lindbergh? Didn't he fly that plane? Wasn't he a hero? Wasn't he a hero? Why are the Jews so upset about Lindbergh? You know, because he gave a speech in Iowa and said there were three groups that were going to get America into the war, the Roosevelt administration, the English and the Jews. And that's I mean, I think it's it's I haven't seen the movie isn't out yet. I read the book, the book. If it's any if it's true to the book, it's going to be a disaster for the people who are bringing it out because it's going to bring about the very opposite of what they intend. Well, it seems like more and more people are starting to come around to that point of view, um, seeing that that Lindbergh wasn't such a bad guy and that that whole America First movement was maybe uh, the right way to go. And a lot of those folks supported Trump, thinking that Trump was the new America First candidate. He's been a bit of a disappointment in that regard. He seems to be more of an Israel First candidate. Right. That's the biggest disappointment in recent years. He had a great mandate from the American people, and then it just turned into nothing, you know, and he ends up murdering Soleimani, committing these crimes. It's it's a disaster. H- handing all of Palestine, including the Holy Land, to the Zionists on a silver it's platter. A, it's, it's, it's enough to make a grown man cry. <laughs> yeah, some America first guy. Well, uh, well, we'll see who picks up the torch as the America first candidate. But uh, anyway, we've come to the end of another great conversation. Uh, Thank you so much. E. Michael Jones, your work at CultureWars.com is uh, some of the most compelling stuff out there. So keep it up. Thank you. All right. Take care, Mike.